Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, I'm Peter Oborn in West London, and Richard, you've got some news for us, haven't you? Yes, I'm Richard Heller in South East London, beginning with the amazing news that cricket has resumed in the West Indian island of St Vincent on a test match ground, the um, Arnold's Vale ground in Kingstown. They've resumed their T10 tournament between the Salt Pond Breakers, the Botanic Gardens Rangers, the Grenadine Divers, the La Soufriere Hikers and the Dark View Explorers. There's a team I'd like to play for, the Dark View Explorers. Are you sure it's a cricket team? Very definitely a cricket team. Very definitely contesting this T10 tournament. T10, we might have views on whether that's real cricket, but I think it's real cricket and it's happening at a test match ground. And there's some even more exciting news in prospect. Cricket might return on Saturday coming, the 30th of May, to the British Isles with a T20 exhibition match in Guernsey. It will be played under social distancing rules, and these are quite interesting because they might apply to cricket in England when it resumes. Guernsey Cricket is going to insist on a new ball at each end, wicketkeepers not allowed to stand within one metre of the stumps, no use of changing rooms, players must arrive separately, no shared equipment, umpires to wear gloves and disinfect the ball between overs. That's going to take up a bit of time, and I think that will reinforce the trend for T20 matches. And above all, no high fives or handshakes. And uh, that's a welcome return of cricket to where it was in the 50s and 60s before Tony Locke introduced hugs and kisses into English cricket. One person, Richard, who would very much have, I think, I'm guessing, have liked that return to old customs would be Stephen Fay, one of my longtime heroes who died last week. A wonderful, proper old school journalist, wrote about many things, a financial journalist in the 80s. And he wrote for the Sunday Times for many years. And towards the end of his life, he he got involved quite heavily in cricket writing, including writing that wonderful, fascinating comparative study of John Arlott and E.W. Swanton, which I think you have read, haven't you? Because you've read every book. (laughs) Well, a while back. But uh, yes, it's very much in my mind. It was a very important book. It got the Wisdom Book of the Year award in in its year. Stephen Fay was a journalist of the old school, but he had a very young outlook. And when he was appointed as um, editor of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, uh, quite late in his life, age 62, they said, rightly, it was part of our youth policy. (laughs) Because he did have a young outlook and he introduced a lot of um, young and new cricket writers into Wisdom Cricket Monthly. In particular, what he did, which was still unfashionable in those days, was to spot the two brilliant young, well, not that, as young as they were then, women cricket journalists, Emma John and Tanya Aldred, who are now absolutely at the top of their profession. He did. He was, I think, generally all through his um, career. I think he was quite a big um, talent spotter. And um, somebody who recognised and insisted on high standards as others, kept very high standards himself, very independent-minded journalist and everything he wrote about. But as you say, very in his later years, when he wrote that book on Arlott and Swanton, did an important job, added a lot of depth to the perception of both men, who were very much treated as... Um, I think in rather cliched terms in the in the world of cricket. You know, John Ollett was the voice of cricket. Well, what they were, Richard, was 
a kind of class war. I mean, on the one hand, you had the old committee man, E.W. Swanton and his blazer and his MCC tie, who wrote that sycophantic biography of Gubby Allen, the most monstrous figure in post-war English cricket, and John Arlott, the great radical. You know, it was a real sort of Labour v Tory divide, radical v establishment divide, wasn't it? Or are you saying it became more nuanced? I think it became more nuanced. I think they were closer together, particularly on apartheid, which is an issue that um, Swanton sort of broke with a consensus earlier than many, um, the consensus of playing sport with South Africa. Partly from his experience, he was a big... um, he had a home in the West Indies. He had a lot of experience in the West Indies. He took a lot of tours to the West Indies, and it made him realise, I think, how repulsive the apartheid system was and how incompatible with cricket. Though he resisted them, I think, at the, at the time, Swanton came to accept a lot of the innovations that um, happened in cricket in the 60s and 70s, particularly one-day cricket and the arrival of... Um, overseas players in English county cricket. And um, I think he had a more flexible mind than people gave him credit for. It's a fascinating idea for a book. But one final thing about Stephen Fay, of course, he watched, and now that he's no longer with us, he was there when Bradman played his final innings at Lord's. And that wonderful memory will have gone with him. But uh, we ought to move on because we have a really remarkable guest today. We are delighted to welcome today Dr. Sarah Fain, who the, was the founder and the CEO for 18 years of the Afghan Connection charity, which has often been described as the mother of Afghan cricket. We're delighted to have her here today because we want to talk a lot about Afghan cricket. It's one of the most astonishing stories in the history of sport. She's very, very much a part of it. And so it's a terrific pleasure to have her today. Sarah, I think you've been involved in Afghanistan and parts of Pakistan since the 1980s. That's right, yes. I first went out to that part of the world as a medical student when I was 24, when I went to the northwest frontier province of Pakistan. Wow. Where, we, where did you go to? I went to a place called Banu, which is a very tribal area Indeed. right on the borders of Afghanistan. And it was um, when Afghanistan was at war with the Soviets. And our, our hero, Faisal Mahmood, was stationed there as a member of the Pakistani constabulary from 1948 to 52. He, he was, then became the... Um, <laughs> opening bowler for Pakistan for many years, carried their attack. And that was where he was stationed. It must have been a wonderful place to be. It was really fantastic. I was quite an adventurer. And the journey from Peshawar down to Banu was extraordinary in what they called the flying coaches. And and we went past all these little shops and all they were selling was um, weapons. You could have any weapon (laughs) copied. And, um, And I remember trying out a Kalashnikov. It was all totally bizarre. Well, not so different from the United States, <laughs> some parts of the United States, is it? <laughs> Probably a little um, more orderly. <laughs> yeah, yes, could be. Sarah, you went to Afghanistan, I think, in, in 2001. Was that the first time you'd been to Afghanistan? But certainly you saw Afghanistan in, well, really in a, in a terrible condition after the civil war and the ejection of the Taliban. Yes, I was. I was. Um, I, I sort of was on in the borders of Pakistan and Afghanistan in, in 1988 as well. But by that time, I hadn't had children. And I think when I went in 2001, it was when the Taliban was uh, holding a sort of lethal grip on the country. And I'd, I'd had four kids by this time. And so I, I had a very different view of life. And traveling in Afghanistan at that time was hugely shocking, really. Um, it had 23 years of war. 
it had been so destroyed. There was no sort of no tarmac roads, no infrastructure, very few children attending school. There were refugee camps everywhere. And it was very disturbing. And I, I did clinics. I was working in a clinics for women and children, and I was listening to the stories of the women and how the family life had been torn apart by the years of war. And it had a very profound effect on me. I, I think there was a huge turning point in my life. It must have been. Uh, sir, I'm not sure we established early enough that you were a doctor and you were in Pakistan as a, as a doctor, weren't you? That's right. I was a medical student and I was tr- um, training with this incredible woman called Ruth Coggan, um, who was an obstetrician out there looking after women in childbirth. It was an area which had the highest, one of the highest maternal mortality rates in the world. So it was, it was a very sort of eye-opening experience. But it was your visit anyway to Afghanistan 2001 that um, led you to found Afghan Connection, wasn't it? That's right. I think that that journey, traveling across Afghanistan at the time, the people I met, and above all, the incredible resilience of those people and their hospitality. You know, they took me into their homes at the end of each day when I had nowhere to stay. They looked after me and they gave so much when they had so little. And I, I think it was, I just came back wanting to do something, to put something back into that country, to support as many as I could. This was 2001 you're talking about? Yes, absolutely. So that was actually the year, was that before or after the fall of the Taliban? It was before. And when I came back to this country, you know, really Afghanistan was so forgotten. Nobody ever talked about it. It was very difficult to get support for Afghanistan. But then suddenly we had 9-11 and really we hit the ground running as a charity because there weren't that many people operating out there. And we got the Sunday Times Christmas appeal very early on, which was a huge boost to our, our beginnings, really. So when you were there in, with the Taliban, was there any cricket at all that you saw being played? No, I travelled a long way to because it was incredibly difficult to get to the Panjshir where I was going. And I travelled a long way and I didn't see any cricket at that time, no. I was in Afghan in uh, Afghanistan in the start of 2003. I remember driving through Jalalabad and it really surprised me. There was cricket on most street corners by then. Yes, I'm sure. I mean, Jalalabad is is definitely the sort of home of cricket, I would think, in Afghanistan. So I should think that it had begun by then. That was about a year, a year to eighteen months after the invasion. Actually, as the um, after the invasion, when people started to come back from Pakistan, that's really when the cricket started to to take off in in the country. And I do, I was traveling in the north in a, around sort of two thousand three four, and we'd taken some cricket bats and balls to one of the schools. And um, I was watching this. I saw this cricket match in the middle of nowhere by a river. And they were using whatever they could, sort of ball made out of shirts that they tear up and then cover in sticky tape. And and uh, they weren't used to seeing foreigners. And I remember getting out of the car and going down and they were amazed to see me. And they were even more amazed when I went back to the car and I got wicket-keeping gloves, balls <laughs> and bats. And they said it was as if an angel had come from oh. heaven. They couldn't believe it. This weird woman in the middle of nowhere with cricket equipment. And actually, that was one of my favourite memories of all the 18 years <laughs> going there. So, Sarah, there you are driving randomly through Afghanistan and you see some people playing cricket. Why did you have cricket equipment in the back of your car? Uh, well, th- we were running a twin school project then, which was twinning schools in the UK with schools in Afghanistan. And one of the schools had given me some cricket equipment to take to their school out in Afghanistan. So I had a bit of surplus kit in the back of the car, which came in incredibly useful. 
But surely one always takes cricket kit in one's car when one never knows when one... <laughs> one it's might very be, good practice, yes. <laughs> I've one certainly done so ever since. Part. I know it's the, the one thing that will, will help me to cross any barriers in Afghanistan is either to talk about cricket or to have a cricket bat or ball in my hand and then anybody will talk to you and, and it'll get you out of any difficult situation. What was the, um, in these early days, the attitude of the uh, Taliban to cricket? I think that at first they just banned all sports. It was such a miserable grip they put on the country. They banned so much of the, anything that really could cause any joy or, or hope was banned. But then in 2000, they, they actually gave their blessing to Afghan cricket. 2000, that was a year before 9-11, yeah. I, yeah. I think I've heard that it was because um, they thought cricket was better than football and other games because at least people wore full trousers. I don't know if that's right or not. Yeah. When I was writing my history of Pakistan cricket, I looked deeply into the question of the Taliban in the tribal areas. And they uh, actually held tournaments and there were Taliban cricket teams. And they just insisted that you played in a shalwa kameez, which made the leg glance a very tricky shot to play, apparently, according to those who played in Shawas. But so in other words, it was quite a lot of cooperation, actually, with the authorities. They'd hold festivals, which where the authorities would also be there. It's very interesting uh, that in South Waziristan, there were amazing festivals involving the Taliban. They had their own teams, even. Yeah, I think it's always very interesting when you look into these things further. There's so many people that, that look at different groups as very, very extreme. But often, if you if you really abide by the rules, so it's like when we're doing any cricket with girls, we're so careful that they wear the right kit, that they have their heads covered. Because so often, it's like even going to school in Afghanistan for girls. If, there's, if there is an environment like a proper school with a roof and a wall around it and there are female teachers, then there's far less objection. It's, it's often much more about how you approach these things than the actual problem of cricket or school in itself. There really was no cricket at all in Afghanistan, was there, until it was reintroduced into the country by returning refugees. Yes, I think that um, the refugees who'd fled to Pakistan during the years of war, one of the one things that kept them going, as, as especially the young guys, was that they played cricket and they used to sort of cut down branches and make their own balls and they learned to play cricket. They'd seen it on black and white television in their camps and, and they wanted to play. And they, they then had this dream that one day they'd return to their country and that they would take cricket back with them and, and they had a dream that they'd one day get to the World Cup. And that's really how it all began. They they came back to Afghanistan and, and they were so passionate. They had this extraordinary dream. They were so determined and, and it all began to grow from that. Indeed. And Afghanistan is the only major test playing country where cricket's been introduced by really by its own people, not by the British as colonisers or um, conquerors or um, through commerce. I mean, it's it's very much an organic Afghan sport, isn't it? It is, and I think that uh, the British tried to introduce it in 1839, I think, <laughs> when they played cricket during that time, but it, it didn't take off. It was it was probably observed with great curiosity, um, but it, it didn't take And some take hostility. Off. I, I, well, I, I looked at the early records, and it was obviously, it's well known that the Afghans took again the Brits quite seriously in, the, in 1839 to 42, and they never, they refused completely to get involved in the cricket. They watched it sullenly. And then, of course, they destroyed the British and they rolled it, rose up against the British. I don't think it was the worst of the sins of the British, but it was certainly not regarded with any local favour. 
the first returning refugees, cricket-playing refugees, were mainly Pashtuns, weren't they? But cricket's now spread right through Afghanistan, and I saw that it's played in 32 of its 34 provinces, and it's spread to the other ethnic groups, I believe, in, in Afghanistan. Have you seen cricket in all of those 32? How much of the country have you actually visited, Sarah? No, I haven't managed to visit all those provinces. I've probably visited about 15 provinces. Mm -hmm. um, and I used to be able to travel much more widely, funnily enough, when the Taliban were in control than, than <laughs> now. <laughs> but the beauty is that we sort of got the support of a wonderful chap called Rees Almadzai, who used to captain Afghanistan to help us with our cricket projects. And he um, was running something called the Afghan Youth Cricket Support Organization. So he was able to go and often with members of the Afghan cricket team to deliver cricket to all those provinces because they were able to travel freely. And there was one province they went to, I think it was Host, and they turned up to give 50 kids some cricket coaching and 10,000 turned up. Good so it, mm. it's, it, it's just remarkable. Uh, where does Rashid the Great, we all love him so much, Rashid Khan come from? I think he, can't, he comes from Jalalabad area. He's, he's near to Jalalabad because uh, we were doing a little project with him where we helped build a cricket pitch in his area. I think it's somewhere called Farmel Hada, somewhere around there. Yes, so the east of the country. And was, was he part of any, of any of your projects? How did he kind of get his passion for cricket? Because he's now become one of the most amazing, best paid and most attractive players in the whole world. Well, he, I think he, I would say he's a, a typical Afghan. He's, he's about 21 years old. So he will have grown up with cricket as the only sort of hope and excitement and pride of, of Afghanistan, and especially in that part of the country. So he will have, you know, he will be one of the part of that huge youth that is, is now engaged with cricket. I think there are 1.2 million cricketers in Afghanistan now. Right. So, um, so that, that I think he's just a part of that, really. And he's just obviously got the most exceptional talent. And he is now such a superhero in his country he is the man that every young chap looks up to and he's a, he's, he's a role model and and I've met him a number of times and and he has such a lot on his shoulders I, I think he's extraordinary because to have that kind of pressure on you that you know when you play you're not just playing for yourself you're really playing for the hopes and dreams of your whole country mm. I think it's it's very tough and he does an awful lot for charity he's he's got his own foundation he's you know he's He's doing well, considering all the pressures that are put upon him. You must have seen cricket in some astonishing settings in Afghanistan. Sarah, what's, what is the most astonishing you've ever seen? I think probably the most moving I've ever seen is kids just playing out in front of this aeroplane wreck in Kabul which mm. you might have seen pictures of it because mm. yeah, it's, it's been Just used quite airport, often. Yeah. As, you, as you drive yeah, in. Yeah, and there's yeah. This, this sort of destroyed Ariana plane and, and it's, got, it's full of pock marks and it's a real symbol of war. And there are these ragamuffin kids playing in front of it uh, with just such exuberance and it's such a wonderful symbol of how cricket can sort of bring hope and opportunity however devastated your life and country is. Before cricket, uh, the national sport of Afghanistan was Bush Bushkashi, where the stress lands, which I gather is two teams of horsemen competing to seize the corpse of a headless goat. Did you see any of that? I did. I, honestly, it is. I wish that you could all see it live. It was so exhilarating because, first of all, all of, all of the horsemen are dressed in these incredible costumes. So the, the colour and vibrancy is amazing. And the speed of the horses and the wildness of the game. We had to evacuate the stands at times as the horses rushed towards us. There was no boundaries, really. Um, it's a really raw, rough game and hugely exciting to watch. Wow. 
And this has been a sort of transition from Buscashi to, to cricket, although... Um... <laughs> I hope not. I hope that they both can live alongside each other because I think that Buscashi is such a wonderful game. I think they don't always use a body of a goat anymore. I think they probably oh. have other sort of more politically correct ways of playing, mm. but I hope they continue to thrive alongside each okay. other because they both have a similar passion and uh, sort of get the crowds going in an amazing uh, way. Yeah. I'll tell you what, Ben Stokes would be a brilliant Buscashi player wouldn't he I mean he's absolutely made for it muscular tough fearless yeah, he's, yep. yeah it's I think it'd be good for ground fielding Bush Cassie <laughs> <laughs> you know if you can pick up a headless goat I think you'd be pretty good at picking up and um you know getting the ball thrown in yeah <laughs> <laughs> so were you interested in cricket before all of this at all or, or was this just a means to an end once you got involved in development work in Afghanistan I think if you told me that I'd be sitting having an interview with Peter O'Bourne about cricket in Afghanistan, I would have never believed that would happen. Uh, my cricket really consisted of being interested in the game and, and playing in the constantly in the garden with my kids. But it was really because my son noticed that, that the Afghan team needed support in 2008. And, and he'd noticed that they played at Sandhurst and that they were in the bottom league in the world, but they had this huge determination and needed support. So he was the one that said, Mum, you've just got to get on and expand from education to education and cricket and that's how it really began so at that point there was a afghan national team of some form was there in 2008 when you got involved yes they had a they had a national academy in kabul which was just a dust field and they were really struggling um, because they had no real financial support they didn't have much equipment and i took out a whole lot of bats and balls to the national academy in 2008 um, and that was just before they went to jersey and started to win in international tournaments and they just kept on and on winning and then shortly after that, we, we managed to get Matt Fleming, Matthew Fleming from the MCC to get involved. Oh, yeah. The former captain of Kent, wasn't he? I think. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And he was, the MCC had done a few forays into Afghan cricket. They uh, had an, a very interesting match in Bombay, I think it was, against an, M- an MCC team playing against uh, a young Afghan team. And and Mike Gatting had been out for a duck. Mm. And, um, and they'd noticed sort of rising stars and the potential. So they were very keen to help Afghan cricket. And I think they were just worried about how to get involved without, you know, getting their fingers burnt. So when, when we went to them asking for support, they were very willing to help. They wanted just to find a good partner to work with. So it was it was a wonderful match, really. And the Foreign Office, I think, gave some help to Afghan cricket too, or our, our missions in Afghanistan. They were fantastic. We had um, tremendous support from them from 2015. And because of that, we've really managed to step up our cricket. And they also gave us funding so that every time we built a cricket pitch, we were also able to refurbish a school. So we renovated a lot. Altogether, we've renovated over 86 schools. So that was a huge step forward to get Foreign Office help. And I think very bright of them to see that actually cricket was a very sensible thing to support in Afghanistan and a great way to show support for the country. I also like the fact that Robin Marler was so supportive at the MCC and he really got it didn't he? Yes he did and I, I, all hats off to him he was there right before any of us um, noticing that kind of thing there were you know there were definitely people that had picked up on the fact and people at the embassy and people at the MCC who knew that there was potential there. I think that what was really interesting to me in Afghanistan was that um, so many of the places we were able to reach with cricket, so a lot of the, we worked in over 22 provinces, were totally unreached really, but either by government aid, you know, Afghan government aid or by um, foreign aid. 
And therefore to turn up and to renovate a school and to give cricket to the kids and to show that you cared about them in those far-flung places was incredibly important because a lot of the resistance and a lot of the fact that people end up joining the Taliban is because they don't get any support. So yeah, I think it's a very valuable way forward. I think it's it's a great way of uniting a country and a great way of other countries showing support. Quite comparable in its southern neighbour, Pakistan, where in Pakistan, there's a lot of vociferous elements, uh, you know, different tribes, different regions, different classes. But the one thing which really unites the country is cricket, that national cricket team, and the army is the other. Is it, it's, it's asking, it's, it's expected, I'm saying too much to think that cricket is going to forge a national identity in Afghanistan as it has in Pakistan in quite important ways, I think. I think it's definitely already done that. I think it is almost the national identity of the country. You know, there are different ethnic groups, there are inter-ethnic rivalries and difficulties. But cricket, I think it was large, at the beginning, it was was sort of thought of far too much as a Pashtun sport and something that had come from Pakistan. And now that it's spreading over the country and that the Afghan cricket board are making a big effort to stop that kind of feeling that it's just a Pashtun sport. I think that more and more it is it is a means for for uniting the country. You know, the more that we can spread that outside of Pashtun areas into other areas of Afghanistan, the better. Uh, can I ask you some uh, personal advice? I, I took a cricket team to Pakistan on a few occasions. Last year, we went up the Indus Valley in a wonderful journey. Could we take a cricket tour to Afghanistan? First of all, can I just say that I don't know if you've all heard, but there is a there is a ceasefire currently in Afghanistan. And because of coronavirus, we never get good news. The good news is it's extraordinary that there's been a three day ceasefire over total ceasefire over Eid. And that was after violence had really reached extraordinarily awful levels recently. So I I think there's hope. I think I think recently the violence has got much worse, and so I I would be more hesitant. But it, I think if you watch very carefully over the coming months, hopefully there will begin to be some more progress in Afghanistan, and then it it would be for them an absolute blessing if a country did go and tour there. They would love it, and the hospitality would probably overwhelm you as it does me when I go there. You'd come <laughs> back very very fat and very, thing to do. <laughs> very yeah. overwhelmed. But obviously, it would be need to be you know very carefully thought through. But if you go, I'll come with you. Huh. Ooh, <laughs> All yes, right, please. that's oh, a deal. Yeah, that's certainly the word. Yeah. Um, Sarah, you said at one point that cricket's got very much the same sort of status as education now in Afghanistan. I've, you have a, I have a quote from you here. They children will walk hours to go to school. They will do anything to have an education, and it's the same with cricket. And then you went on to say. People know that cricket can change their lives and get them out of their poverty. It's a massive thing. Clearly, cricket's a great social force in Afghanistan. But looking at the chance to make a living out of it, we know that there are Afghan international stars making a good living out of the game. But can you make a living out of it as a sort of what I'd call a journeyman professional in domestic Afghan cricket alone? Because if so, that's a major step for ordinary Afghans. Yes, it's interesting. I think that it's becoming considered much more now as a career opportunity. I mean, obviously, everyone wants to play, but also there are academies springing up everywhere. There are big stadiums in a lot of the areas of the country now. And 
I think there are over 300 professional cricketers. There are opportunities for umpiring. There's, yeah. there's so much coaching going on. So I think it's, it's a whole new career opportunity in Afghanistan and uh, in a place where actually half the population is under 18 and the, the job opportunities are so remote. So I think, yes, it's definitely becoming something that, that young people can aim for as, as, as to be um, professionally involved. That's a major step for any country's cricket. If people can aspire to make a living out of it, it's a great milestone. I think actually the difference in the, the thing I love about Afghanistan is that because the cricket has come from people that had nothing, you know, that those those national team heroes came from the refugee camps of Pakistan. They had absolutely nothing. They had no hope. They had no money. They had no. That that means that every child in Afghanistan can aspire to being as part of the team, the part of the national team one day, even if, of course, it's a remote possibility, but you can have that dream. I think we've got to do that in this country. I think that, that it's often seen as an elite game in this country. And I think that actually that's what we should really be concentrating to get everybody to believe that they can be part of this great game and to, to spread the game and to grow the game much more because we've done so much to sort of negate that by taking it out of our state schools by you know mm, by reducing mm, the opportunities for people agree. whereas in India and Afghanistan all those young people they, they're playing all the time they, they can aspire to be players and, and I think that's so important we need to get that dream up and running in this country I think it started with the World Cup last year I think that was really and really fantastic but I think we've got to build on that momentum and it's so sad that everything's had to close down this year mm. Sarah, it's been really moving and fascinating talking to you. But could you tell me a little bit more about what your the Afghan Connection actually did do on the ground? Yes, I mean, our projects started with health, but they transitioned more to education. And with education, we wanted to make sure that children in Afghanistan had access to education. When I was first there in 2001, there were just a million children attending school and only 5,000 of them were girls. So we were determined to try and help to build that up. We ended up by constructing and renovating over 130 schools and training 1,000 teachers. And we sort of focused most of our efforts up in the north of Afghanistan in one particular area where no women had been to school before. And over these years, we've managed to make sure that now 80% of the girls are going to school. So that was our, our mainstay. And then with the cricket, um, with the help of Marylebone Cricket Club and the Foreign Office and private donors, we've built over 100 cricket pitches across the country. And we've held coaching camps for thousands of kids. And we've coached coaches, um, including oh. female coaches. Also, we've done a lot of um, work with disability. So we've, we've built cricket pitches for disabled cricketers and the visually impaired. And that's been an amazing project. So, yes, all in all, we've managed to reach far more children and young people than I ever anticipated. You've done some absolutely wonderful things. Yep. Well, it's it's a remarkable country to work in. And I feel very honoured to, to have been able to play a little part in, in its rebuilding. And if I could just reinforce this point, cricket is not, as it were, an add-on to the Afghan Connections work in Afghanistan. It's very much part of the whole effort of in education. It's very much bound up with education and development, isn't it? Absolutely. And I, I think that cricket is a, a marvellous medium for supporting young people to reach their full potential. It offers so much to an individual in terms of confidence and team play and, and growth that it's very much an important part of their education. And it's been wonderful to do the two hand in hand. Can I just ask quickly, does Afghanistan yet have the same tradition that Pakistan has that players can just almost walk into the national team and get discovered almost out of nowhere in coaching camps or in bowling, even 
Sometimes in Pakistan, a player we interviewed got a test career just out of bowling in the nets. Is that sort of thing happening in Afghanistan? And is that um... yeah, it does. I've I've actually seen it happen. I took um, Risa Madzai to see one of our schools and to watch the boys playing on a new cricket pitch. And he got the boys to bowl at him, and one of them was absolutely unbelievably good. And Reese just said, "Oh my goodness, you've got to turn up for the National Academy this week. Wow. We're going to give you a trial." That's wonderful. And mm. um, and there was another guy called Nasir Jamal who is um, used to attend our cricket camps, and he's now playing for Afghanistan. So, yes, there are really good fairy stories out there, which is very important for other young people to see. Why the one of the, there are so many reasons that it's moving, but one of them is that in countries like Britain or or Australia, the coaching thing is so sort of mechanical almost you know it's so structured that you know from that, that once you're there are no surprises like that but the idea that you're there and suddenly one of the players turns up gets whistles up some bowlers and he says and, and suddenly that guy's in the national academy that's very very special I think that's really why I've had so much joy working in Afghanistan you know you can turn up and and do something as a small organization you're very nimble and it's the same with the cricket you know that that things are still possible because there isn't that huge infrastructure so therefore things can be more unbureaucratic reminds me of the wonderful story of um, Tausif Ahmed in Pakistan he was a uh, an off spinner who had a test career of I think 35 test matches but it all began because he was just an ordinary club cricketer. He was an off-spinner and the test team needed some extra net practice against off-spin for the visiting Australians. They called him in and he bowled so well in the nets that they put him straight into the test team. <laughs> and rather unluckily displaced the off-spinner they'd originally selected who never got another chance. But uh, it's just a sort of fairy story that happens quite often in Pakistan and... Um, it's wonderful to hear that it's the same sort of thing could be happening in Afghanistan. Another comparison with Pakistan I want to ask you about. As you know, Richard and I have done a lot of work uh, writing about Pakistan cricket. And in the 90s, there was a terrific battle, very, very difficult battle for women's cricket. It had, it had flourished quite a lot in the 60s uh, and 70s, under the, in the Bhutto years in particular, and then when President Zia became in a military coup, took over, he formed these alliances with the religious parties and they basically stopped women's cricket in Pakistan in any form. And then the, we, Richard and I met the Khan sisters, these fabulous two women who fought a huge number of battles, death threats in order to get the national women's team established. Also battles against the Pakistan cricket establishment, which refused to acknowledge their existence. I mean, I, I think of them as the suffragettes of Pakistan and they ought to have statues. This is a very sensitive subject, but I imagine it must be quite difficult in parts of Afghanistan as well. Absolutely. And I think also we, we often fail to look back on the difficulties women faced in this country. Quite so. Um, so I think, yes, in Afghanistan, like everything for girls and women, it's, it's, it's very hard to make progress, in, especially in something like sport. And you have to be incredibly culturally sensitive about it. They did have a national team and it was disbanded in 2014. But we've been very careful about how we've done girls cricket because we didn't want it to be something that would actually cause danger for the girls or cause problems for our other projects. So we've been sure to do it in, in schools where the parents have consented to the girls doing the cricket, where the girls wear, as I said before, proper kits so that they cover their heads and they wear long shirts and trousers. 
And I think that we've done this for a lot of girls. And it's been amazing going to watch them. They, they, a lot of them had learned cricket by watching the World Cup. And they, they, they knew all the, all the movements and, and things like that from and all about the teams that have been in the World Cup. But the good news is that Afghan Cricket Board is now really trying to get girls cricket up and running again. And, um, and I think that it's a really good beginning to the rebirth of girls cricket. They're taking it slowly but, and they're starting it at school level. And um, they've already had some competitions between the girls in Kabul and the girls in Herat, and they're starting to identify really top players. So I think that we can all have some hope, and, and I'm, I'm very glad that the Afghan Cricket Board are taking it so seriously. Kabul Herat must be a real sort of um, quite a tough fixture, that. <laughs> quite a tough fixture. <laughs> and it's hard for the Afghan Cricket Board because obviously the Taliban were um, very against girls' cricket, so they've had to tread a fine line. So I think it's it's very good that they're starting to support in this way. That is very welcome news, though it prompts the question, what will happen to cricket for everybody in Afghanistan if the Taliban reassume power or gain a greater share of power in the near future? Do you think cricket's become embedded enough, certainly for men and boys in Afghanistan, to, well, to survive a Taliban revival? I think that the Taliban are very sensible about about certain things, and one thing is their own their own PR. And if they stopped cricket in Afghanistan, it would be a massive backlash on them. But also, they sent a message of congratulations to the um, national team when they got into the 2015 World Cup. I don't I don't see that they would do that. I think that it's going to be tough for girls and women going forward, and we'll have to watch that space. But I hope that. People will fight their corner in this any peace deal that goes forward. Well, we certainly we certainly agree with that. Is there a practical way that um, the outside world might be able to help women and girls cricket in Afghanistan without being too interfering? I think it's very difficult. I think that we've done a lot of harm in Afghanistan by pushing the women's rights issues in a, in a Western way. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the approach has been take off the burqas, get women out. What women really want is to be educated. Girls need to be educated so that they can fight their own battles. And I think that any pushing from the outside world actually does more harm than good often. Mm-hmm. That's something I've learned, that if you if you listen to the local people, all our education work was done with local communities with taking into account full sensitivities. And if only more people had worked like that, I think that we, much more progress would have been made in Afghanistan. Well, that's a very important point, uh, which we must all listen to. Um, cricket, Sarah, had competition as a sport in Afghanistan from football and basketball and other sports, indeed, but it kind of saw them off, didn't it? Was it simply because the cricket team was more successful? Afghan cricket made the the fastest rise in international ranking of any national sports team, you know, from the fifth level to the top level in 10 years. And I looked up the Afghan football team's FIFA rating. It's 149. So the, the cricketers, you know, are in a, a different league, almost literally, to any other sports people in, in Afghanistan. You just add to what Richard's saying there. It's an amazing historical achievement. I mean, what has happened to cricket in Afghanistan? It's risen so fast. It's one of the momentous stories in the entire history of cricket. Of world sport. Of world sport. Of any sport, yeah. It's it's so lovely to hear those words. And I think that if you think how we're saying this, imagine the effect of that on a population that has had 40 years of war. 
I mean, imagine, you know, we all love a good news story, but imagine watching your team going out and winning and winning and winning and coming back and being able to go out on the streets and celebrate something together that's so positive. And I think that's why cricket has had this magic. It's, it's, it's the team has just given the country this huge cause for hope and it's put them on the international stage in a positive light for the first time. And so I think it's outweighed anything else. I think football is still incredibly popular and it's a very much a, a tragic popular sport as well, which is one of the other ethnic groups. But cricket, you know, look how excited we get about it and just imagine if you were an Afghan, how you'd feel. I went to see the... Um... Sadly, it was cut down by rain, but I went to see Afghan, Afghanistan's first appearance at Lords in a match against the, the MCC a few years ago. And their fans gave incredible support to the team. They only got about seven overs to watch, but they stayed on to cheer, and everybody loved meeting them. They were probably the most popular fans in the last year's World Cup. What is also so fascinating, look, Afghan cricket has now got its own diaspora, which is, we learnt last week from Tim Wigmore in our fascinating conversation with him, there are now 350 cricket teams in Germany, and it isn't that the Germans have taken it up. It's, but it, it's the Afghans who've gone to Germany, and they're setting up leagues, and they're actually very, very good. These are quite formidable. And it's likely that, driven by Afghan exiles, Germany is going to emerge as a, a significant cricketing nation in the next few years. Absolutely. And I, I'm determined to try and support refugee cricket. Not only are you supporting people that are actually having some of the biggest life struggles of any of us, but also they will spread cricket around the world. It's a fantastic means of taking the flag of cricket further and further afield. And it's incredible what's happening in Germany and it's happening in this country too. I'm hoping to start a refugee hub in Croydon where there's an amazing refugee cricket project where young Afghans come and play and it's not only making their life experience so much better in this country, but it's also they may be the future players for our nation. So it's, it's, it's definitely absolutely right. We should be supporting it. Perhaps this is a good moment to move on and ask Sarah about the work she's now doing at the MCC because you're, you're now talking about the way you're developing cricket in this country. Tell us about it, Sarah, because I don't think many people know at the moment. So we're bringing the charity Afghan Connection to a close. A lot of our work is now sustainable. And as you can see, the cricket's completely taken off. And in the meantime, I've been offered a a post as director of the MCC Foundation, which is the charitable arm of Maribone Cricket Club. And it's a very exciting opportunity to, to see how we can support young cricketers in this country, as well as overseas. Uh, so that's my, my new role currently. Now, what, what we all know about cricket in this country is that if you go to a private school, you have a terrific, you know, as I did, and it was a really real privilege. You played on these lovely grounds, well coached. But in state schools, hardly happens anymore. And so there's a real problem there that so many people don't get access to it. Is that something you're going to be confronting at the dealing with or helping on? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the MCC Foundation already runs 55 cricket hubs, and they're specifically for talented young cricketers from state education who would otherwise not really get a chance to get the sort of coaching and access to talent pathways that privately educated children would have. And I want to try and expand those hubs, not just to talented kids that play in clubs, but also to all the communities in this country, you know, to really disadvantaged kids, children from refugee communities, from South Asian communities, from inner cities, can actually have the opportunity to get onto that talent pathway and develop their talent at cricket. 
That would be a wonderful thing to do. And if you could replicate um, in this country what, what's happening in Afghanistan and Pakistan, as we said earlier, that would be, uh, that'd be tremendous news for, for English cricket. I think we just got. We just it's all about making it more accessible and giving opportunities. There, there, there are other programs like Chance to Shine that are helping to young state school educated kids. If we can all work together for the greater good of the game and the greater good of the young people, especially now with this awful coronavirus and its impact that it's going to have on young people going forward, I think cricket could be really important in the years ahead. By the way, uh, Richard's cricket kidney erratics. They're normally short on a Thursday afternoon <laughs> in need of a couple of players at least. <laughs> we sign a lot of players, sometimes on the side of the field. Once we signed a very good Afghan refugee. And so bear that in mind, <laughs> any of your projects, that, <laughs> that anybody's short of a game, the erratics will hoover We're a very good feeder. Up. We're a very good feeder club. Fantastic. And they should be, they, if they've got any talent, they'll soon progress oh, to something better. <laughs> Sarah, I think uh, lots of very good work being done by the foundation, but I think your funding is um, it's been hit quite strongly by the crisis, hasn't it? Yes, I mean, we managed to do a fantastic campaign to help the homeless in Westminster around the ground, which raised £78,000, which was just amazing from generous supporters and, and members. But yes, going forward, we're desperately needing help, especially I think it's so important to help these young people at this time. It's so crucial. So if anybody feels motivated to support, it would be fantastic. And I think the link's going to be available at the end of the podcast. It is. I'll just say it slowly at dictation speed right now. Lords, or one word, dot org slash MCC Foundation slash support. Thank you. Sarah, it's been wonderful talking to you. It's been a um, tremendous experience hearing about the great story of Afghan cricket and also about the work you plan to do going forward. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It's been great fun. And next week, Richard and I will be returning to the subject of cricket and literature. Yes, we've got a great deal to get through on that because so many listeners from a couple of weeks ago came to us with um, novels we disgracefully omitted and getting one of them, astonishingly, by Gary Sobers. So we're looking forward to dealing with those suggestions. If you do have other suggestions, remember our email, please, which is uh, cricket or one word, at gmail.com. We'd be delighted to hear from you. Thank you very much for listening to us. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. <laughs>